Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Directions for Truth Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is on the road. Today, we will be hearing the part two of her amazing story to software, Sound Health Options. It's a great story. It really is. And I've heard it before. And it still amazes me each and every time. It, it really is. It's, it's amazing. Uh, so I'll be getting that started in just a couple of minutes. Uh, first, I have an announcement about net neutrality. I know you're all tired of hearing about net neutrality. The vote comes up on Thursday. And I will put this in the chat over at Blog Talk Radio. That... $101 million, and this is great because it actually has a list, $101 million spent on paying off Congress. We don't call it that. It all has you know legal terms, and it's all – it's called lobbying. But Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and others spread their money far and wide to influence our government. $101 million by ISPs, Internet Service Providers – Going to lawmakers in Congress, surprisingly, the number one on the list, I was trying to see here, uh, is at $2,554,784, John McCain, number one, top recipient. Really? And so it's a list. You can go down here and see your congressman and see how much the uh, Internet service providers have paid them in lobbying funds. Still a vague, like, what does that mean? Does that have to be used for good, or is that just to build a summer cabin? I obviously have a bad attitude about this because this really, even though net neutrality is somewhat confusing to understand, it means that if Ajit Pai, a former Verizon attorney, who is now the head of the FCC, has his way, this is now going to go before Congress, and they're going to vote on it on Thursday, the people who have been paid off $101 million. That's uh, real money to vote on this and take away net neutrality. And their rationale for this is, oh, we're going to have this be kind of more, you know, leave it to commerce, leave it to the marketplace. And I want you to think about how many providers you have for your Internet connectivity service in your town. If you have more than two, that's amazing. Then you live in a really large metropolitan area or a place that when Google was putting out fiber, the highest speed, most cost-effective way to distribute internet bandwidth. It's amazing how in the towns that Google put in fiber before other companies were putting out fiber, when they did that, it was amazing how suddenly it did get competitive. Suddenly AT&T went, oh, wow, we could do that. We can reduce our rates, and we can provide better service because somebody else is doing it. Now we need to compete against that. Well, that's not true in the area that I live in. I have two providers. That's it. There is no choice. There is no marketplace that's total – I can't use that word – 
a lie. I can say lie. And it's just bad. It's going to be bad if they decide to do this and give the ISPs, Internet Service Providers, the choice. I'm not picking on Netflix. They're just a big – everybody kind of knows who Netflix is. If they choose to make it so that they want to get if they are if Netflix is willing to pay more money to have more dedicated bandwidth, then the internet service providers could demand greater fees from them, and they would get more bandwidth. They're going to get that bandwidth from someplace. This is kind of like water. There isn't an infinite supply. Somebody controls the pipe. If they take more bandwidth for a service such as Netflix or the NFL or the National Hockey League or the World Wrestling Federation. I don't know why I'm stuck on sports events, but I am. To do something, they're going to take that bandwidth from some other place. That could be YouTube. That could be anything. That could be the cooking channel. That could be whatever they want. So this is really important. So I will put this in the notes over at uh, Blogjack Radio. And I can't advocate strongly enough again. I will find the link during the show and put the link for where you contact your congressman. And you say, if you do this, and I suggest and find it most effective to call, and even if you don't get a live person, you leave a message, and they have to actually put that into the congressional records, that there has been a call and a word been stated. It has to be a matter of record although it hasn't stopped Aji Pai from ignoring a million comments on the FCC site where he has chosen to just ignore those comments. He's obviously determined. So I'll stop ranting about this, but it's really important. If you care about using the Internet, you really need to spend some time and figure this out and contact your congressman because you may think, oh, you know, what difference does it make? Well, when they turn down your favorite channel because something else pays more, you'll care a lot. Okay, and here we go with Sherry's Amazing Story, Part 2. This is meant to be the second in a series about how bioacoustics came about. We've titled this The Journey of Bioacoustics, but it really should be called Looking for Answers. You've heard in the first session of how I had a very unusual talent of hearing sounds from people and duplicating them, and sort of magic things would happen. We didn't know why any of this was happening, just that it was and that it got results, and I certainly couldn't explain it. I was from Appalachia. I went to a four-room schoolhouse. We had no electricity. I didn't. We didn't have books. We had to share texts at school. It was a bad situation for anybody who was very curious and needed to know more about what was going on. I knew I wanted an education beyond the four-room uh, school. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I just couldn't see any way of doing that. My family was very, very poor. As a matter of fact, my um, neither of my parents who raised me even had a high school education. I was the first person in the entire family to even finish um, 
grade school, much less college. My father, who adopted me, thought education was not for women. So I got married right out of high school. Actually, I got married the day I graduated because I knew I needed to get away from home. My dad took me aside that morning and said, now you be home to milk your cows this evening. You know, this is the day I got married, right? And I said, I'll give you six months and those cows will be gone because you'll be doing the work. Well, it was about six weeks before he sold all the cows off because I had planned my life to go to college um, at Rio Grande College in Ohio. And one of the things that was stipulated was that I had to stay single. And I got pregnant, and so I couldn't go to school there. So I tried to turn around and go to uh, Ohio University and get a job there so that I could take classes on my lunch hour and get an education because there were scholarships if you worked there. Well, it took me 12 years to finish my undergraduate degree, one course at a time. And during that time, I found, or thought I had found, an incredible solution to what I was looking for. There was a course taught by the science teacher that was Introduction to Parapsychology. I was in heaven. I was going to find out what all this stuff was, why I could tell what people were thinking. What are these sounds I was hearing? How how could I touch something and know who had touched it before? How could I sense who had been in the room before? I taught that class for 10 years at the university because the very first courses this teacher was trying to teach us, it was about how all this was happening. He didn't know any more about it than I did. So I could do this stuff. I could tell what was behind his back or whatever. And I remember this little uh, gold frog he had that was an individual cigarette lighter or cigarette ash thing for a party. And he was very impressed that I could tell what that was. But he had that symbol over his head. It was just there. It was an other dimensional thing. Now, whether or not I'm just crazy or a successful schizophrenic of somehow I finally figured out through all the classes and stuff that I had taken and research that I was doing that there was something to this communication between people without actually talking or signaling or body language so we did several projects about this uh, trying to find out what this perceptions, perceptors, I should say, were called, whether it was the biofield or people thought I was very psychic. But that got old quick because psychic is just knowing you know something without knowing how you know. And so we now know that there is a biofield and communication, and that's kind of how it, it works. And I did studies on people thinking they were psychic and were they different and what were their blood tests and sure enough there was a difference in information 
They were less tolerant of outside influences. They were very sensitive. They had to be very thin-skinned to pick something up, very thick-skinned to handle it. So often they were confused. I was looking for any kind of journey education to help me look at this. But something happened that made me really turn around with all of this. And my kids have been involved all along. But one night we were, I shouldn't say one night, one day, we were all out in an old swimming hole by a creek. And my daughter swang out on a Tarzan rope, I don't know, 12 feet in the air at least. And she was kind of heavy and she didn't get to the deep part of the water and she fell off the rope and landed on her knees. And when I got to her, the lower half of her right leg was hanging off on one side. And you could see all the bubbly adipose tissues and and you could even see some tubing. And I should say the water's cold because I think that really helped. But when I got to her, I took her foot and twisted her leg back together and jammed it up against the torn side and wrapped a a t-shirt, a red t-shirt around it. I knew since we were 45 minutes from help, I knew I was going to watch my daughter die. She was going to bleed to death. And I'd been teaching this course at Ohio University for about 10 years, and we brought in laying on of hands healers, and I could do that, and we brought in people who could do this, I, I, and whatever I was exposed to, I could do. And uh, Dolores Krieger was the one that uh, we had on, in on laying hands healing. And I thought, you know, if this stuff really works, I need it to work now. So I knelt um, between my daughter's head and her leg on her left side so she couldn't see what was going on with her leg. And I just started doing sounds and and talking to her and sent for help, and this was pre-cell phone. So I knew that um, I knew she was going to die. But here come the ambulance, and they couldn't get her back up this 12-foot whatever hill, crag, rope, rock it was. So they put her in a basket and floated her up to their necks across this creek. Got her in the ambulance, and I had an old Volvo station wagon then. And here I am following her to the hospital, and I'm still doing sounds <laughs> and driving behind them. And, and I think I was in a, an absolute state of shock because when we got to the hospital, everybody there knew me. I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of them did because they had taken my courses. And they were putting my daughter in the back, and one of the nurses who I knew said, Sherry, you can stop doing the sounds now. They've got her in the back, and she's safe. And the second I stopped doing the sounds, I backed up against the wall, and I just slid down the wall. It was such a relief that they had her. But she started screaming. They don't know how she didn't bleed to death. She had three operations. She was 49 days in the hospital. And my husband and I talked about it. And I'd been doing this stuff for a lark all along, even though I did my master's degree in it. And we talked about it and we said, if 
we can help one parent not have to watch their children die in front of them. If there's a way that we can teach this to people, if there's a way that we can create a device so that this doesn't have to happen ever again, then I'm going to dedicate my life to it. And actually my husband dedicated his life to it too because he has been a big help all along. So from there, looking at what was happening and having one daughter rip her leg off, there came another opportunity, even though that was the turning point. I started looking feverishly for answers. I started researching anything I could find about parapsychology. I made a trip to Duke University. Um, I wrote my master's degree on the ethics of parapsychology and the critical thinking about parapsychology. Duke University uh, bought a copy. I was kind of proud of that. But as we're looking for this, this answers as to why I could do a sound and it would stop blood. I could do a sound and it would stop a headache. There had to be a mechanism. And all along my husband was so staunch in there's got to be some scientific explanation that we just haven't found yet. So we just kept looking. And we had several breakthroughs. Um, my Aunt June was working for us, and we had a lab, and we were working with the woman inside um, the soundproof rooms. And my aunt came in the room. She said, what are you doing in here? My veins are standing up like I took a great big dose of niacin. And we started working with what sound we were giving this other lady and the sound of niacin or anything associated with niacin. And we found out a biochemical formula, a relationship numerically to the sound we were giving and the sound of niacin. Another one that happened along, because all along I didn't know what I was doing. I just felt like I was kind of there for the ride. But my son, who was just out of high school, big soccer player, great football kicker, he had a motorcycle, it was raining, he was going down a big hill, uh, it was slick, the roads are brick here in Athens, and he lost control of his motorcycle, and there was a group of people uh, underneath an umbrella kind of thing, and there was a parking meter, and he chose the parking meter and he damaged his leg he split the bone um, he destroyed his kneecap he destroyed a lot of the vessels in his leg and I remember when they first told me about it I was on my way to Colorado to do a presentation and I walked in the door and they said I'm so sorry to hear about your son I said do you know who I am yeah yeah you're Sherry Edwards well, what's with my son? Well, oh, you didn't know? Well, I'm really sorry. So I find the people who are putting on this presentation. They said, all we know is that you have a notice to call the hospital. And so I called the family first, couldn't find anybody, called the hospital, and they said, well, well we can tell you he'll probably live. I couldn't do anything about anything at that moment. I went in and did my speech, but hurried back home, I, we live in Ohio, 
and he was in the hospital with a cast on one leg. It had been broken, and he was in such incredible pain. He was on a self-pump for, I don't remember, morphine or some kind of painkiller. And he could give himself a dose every 12 minutes. And he was hitting that painkiller every two or three minutes. He was just in agony with that leg because it was just crushed. And so I started working on him, and I did it with my ears, and I got two sounds, and I put the sounds together, and it relieved his pain. And I thought, oh, that's just me because mom's here and whatever. So I changed the sound, the pain comes back, and he starts hitting that morphine pump again. I put the right sound back on the one I'd heard, and his pain calmed down again. And we have all of this in... Um, databases and slides and whatever else and come to find out that if we gave him the right sound he could go nearly an hour without that hitting that morphine pump you take that sound away from him and he was right back on that pump he was in the hospital for about three months also and they transferred him to a rehabilitation center and he's using his sound all along because as soon as he turns it off, the pain comes back. And then they found out that his kneecap that he had destroyed and it was in pieces and they took it all out, it was growing back. And they couldn't find any scar tissue on this bone that he had split vertically. And that was impossible. And to grow his kneecap back was impossible. So we wrote an article about it. And I had um, a doctor from one of the big league teams come to us when we were on um, college property then. And he said, I just came to tell you what a fool you are. And I said, well, could you narrow that down a bit? I really don't want to be a fool. And if I'm doing something wrong, I'd like to quit or change it or something. He said, well, growing a new kneecap, that can't happen. I said, well, would you like to see the x-rays? He said, yeah, yeah. So he's looking at the x-ray, and he he wasn't very polite. He said, any fool can doctor an x-ray. I said, would you like to uh, examine my son, and you can feel the new kneecap? And he said, yeah, yeah, do that. So he's palpating where the knee is, and it's about the size of a 50-cent piece, a little bit more. And he said, well, this 7-inch scar here on his knee you could have put that new kneecap in there. So, so far he uh, said I could doctor x-rays and now I can do knee surgery. I said, would you like to talk to Jesse's doctor? And he said, yes, yes, yes absolutely. So we get them all in the room and on a conference phone call and the doctor, uh, Jesse's doctor, admitted that there was no scar tissue on the bone admitted that pieces of the bone in his ankle had gone back and reset itself. Uh, yes, the kneecap had regrown, but every day that Jesse was in rehabilitation, he ate Oreo cookies. And the doctor said it's just as likely that those Oreo cookies reconstructed his leg and his bone and regrew his kneecap as it was that sound because there is no such thing as a sound can heal a bone. 
I was discouraged but determined that if that happened from a sound and if it took away his pain, there was some mechanism for it. So I started looking and gathering vocal prints. We take 30 seconds of someone's vocal print. They brought a case to me, and again, I'm just looking to see what I can find and see what's really here, because I know it's about the voice. I know it's about me doing a sound. So they brought me two kids that had mucopolysaccharide toxicity. And these kids, if you've ever seen one, they look like Neanderthals. Uh, Big high ridge brow, big uh, boxy shoulders, uh, stunted fingers. And Dustin and Joel, I remember their names, they couldn't feed themselves. They were like 12 and 14 maybe. And they usually die in puberty. They couldn't spoon feed themselves. They wore diapers. And Dustin, uh, you could start, he was the oldest one, you could start him on doing something and he would just keep doing it. Like brush your teeth, he'd brush his teeth till you stop him and, and had him do something else. They didn't talk. Their favorite TV show was The Roadrunner. Now, this was before we had an idea that we could get this information from their voice. We were still doing it with my ears because there's no way these kids were even talking. But we put on a sound that I was hearing. Um, It was a note of G. And Dustin, the older one, went over to his mother, and they didn't even know if he could see well, and punched her nose lightly and said, Mimi, his favorite cartoon was a roadrunner. He then began to march around the room touching things. They began to be able to do things and feed themselves, and it was Dalmatin sulfate. And the frequency I had heard from them was one one-hundredth away from Dalmatin sulfate. They soon began to run out of the Dalmatin sulfate that they had and couldn't use because what it does is like crystallize the frontal part of the brain so they're only existing on the old part of the brain. But we began to be able to put some of this puzzle together. Here was a frequency of Dalmatin sulfate Here was a relationship to a formula. And the more we began to collect data, the more we began to be able to help people. Accidentally, we found out that we could help people who had lost somebody they loved by giving the frequency that I heard from the picture of that loved one. And from there, and we did it enough times, that there was a pattern to birthdays. And I'd already been told that this has to do with astrology and all that, and I didn't believe any of that. And I had a secretary who said, you know, these steps that match astrology, and I just wouldn't hear it. But it come to be that there is a frequency of birthdays, just like the astrologist said. Only we pinpointed it, and brought all of the information together from different places that we didn't really understand. The stuff was there. Here's frequency. Here's birthdays. Here's astrology. But we brought it together in a cohesive pattern. And 
we started to program crystals and then we gave them frequencies and sound and it would give them great relief from their grief but still we didn't know how it was happening we just knew that it worked it would take away backaches and my undergraduate degree is in interpersonal communication and so I started studying about hearing and voices and we eventually created a computer program we call it nano voice n-a-n-o small meaning small voice and we created this computer program and I started looking at people's voices just for the note C C sharp D and what was going on with them by personality traits so we have that um, software that we've been giving away for probably 10 years probably hundreds of thousands of copies of, of that are out there and I put it out there at first with no copyright with um, nothing uh, no cost no registration no nothing then I began finding it online people were selling it and I called up one of these people and you would recognize her voice if you heard it and I said what's the deal here I'm giving this away to the people for free so they can see what's going on with their own voice and we're matching it with personality traits we're helping people balance themselves she said if you're stupid enough to give it away I'm smart enough to sell it and she demanded that I change the first page that for the printout that says this is free and I just absolutely refused I wanted to keep this for the people one I really didn't know everything that was going on um, I, I couldn't um, understand it I couldn't explain it there was some esoteric ancient stuff and there was some modern stuff going on but really nobody was looking at how your voice how the frequencies of your voice could have anything to do with your personality and I thought if I start there that's still available under soundhealthoptions.com under downloads for people who want to look at it. And we started doing research and finding out, yes, this was a problem with people. Yes, if they had the note of D down, they were really needing self-approval and appreciation was um, the key to their personality. And we put up all those charts online for people for free on our site and again under nano voice this time under download and we begin to get data back yes this is 80% right yes it's 90% right yes it's this so that confirmed for me that the voice really held indicators even though we didn't know what we were saying didn't know where we were going with it just kind of out there to see what we we could uh, pull up but the more people were balanced in their notes, the more healthy they seemed to be. So like full-spectrum light, we needed full-spectrum sound. So how can we get full-spectrum sound for people? And the more I dug around, and we were able to help people reverse macular degeneration and arthritic pain, um, so many things and just looking for reasons. So I was invited to the new university, Capital University, 
bunches of doctors got together and decided they wanted to share their information. They met at Georgetown, and they invited me to come and speak to them. Now, they couldn't pay expenses or anything, but they invited me to come to speak to them to show them what I could do. And I was scared silly because I really didn't know what was going on. I just knew that they um, wanted to hear about this. And I thought maybe some of them have more information than I do and we can do something about this. So I went many, many months and I remember this one time, it's about 800 people at a time I'm speaking to and their room full of doctors. And I'm kind of shaking in my boots here. I'm just explaining what we've done, and I'm plainly saying I don't have any medical degrees. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking for answers. And one doctor stood up, and he asked me a question, and I thought, oh, good Lord, I don't know the answer to that. And all of a sudden, I tumbled out of my body. I was standing over in the corner, and I watched my body answer that question. I was flabbergasted. I was awed. Now, I'd done that before when I had an emergency surgery and uh, my son and I nearly died and I popped out of my body and watched the whole thing, but I just thought that was hallucination. Now I'm doing it and there's no pain and I'm not in any emergency situation, but I thought, I need to go write that down because that's really important. And I went back and tested it and sure enough, it was true. And I thought... How do I keep this in the scientific realm when I am in some kind of etheric realm getting the information? And about that time, Sylvia Frank wrote a book, The Tree of Life and the Holy Grail. And in it, she said, Sherry Edwards is a modern keeper of the Holy Grail information. I had known about the Templars. I had read about them. They were a sect of the Catholic Church that was supposed to keep people safe in journeys, safe in health. And the king at the time, I think it was Philip, decided that they were too powerful and too loved, and he tried to wipe out the sect. But before he did, they supposedly imbued their DNA with information about frequency and the frequency of the herb and the frequency of sound, the frequency of the color and how frequency was really the basis of the universe. And I looked at that and I thought, that's the answer. This has come down through my genes, through the Templar generations. Somehow, I'm not crazy. And so then I begin to ask, actively ask for answers. And the answers come to me as to what's going on. Is that psychic ability? Is that intuition? Maybe, but I am so thankful to Sylvia Franck, who I didn't know at the time, for pointing me in that direction and also saying to me that I am probably sane. And from there on, it began to explode in what was going on. Um people began to come to us and and want answers. And they came to us and they wanted to buy us out. 
um, the people from Japan wanted to buy us out for millions of dollars, and I just kept saying, we really need this money, but I don't want Japan controlling the health of the earth and of the universe. This really belongs to the people. And at one point, I went to a past life regressionist, and I said, I need to know about this. And maybe a story, I don't know, maybe real reincarnation. But it was a time when I was dealing with sound and just doing my work and so concentrated on it, didn't pay any attention to anything else, and people came and wanted to take the stuff, and I didn't protect it. And it got away from us, and it got into the wrong hands. And it was used for greed. You know, it's unfortunate. The humans are very greedy, and they see money and status as something much more important than integrity and honesty and truth. And we see that now even in our government. We see it in the big pharma, that health is more important than money, that wealth is more important than what is right. I'm talking about the government there. And I decided at that point that no matter what's happening, I am going to keep this for the people. And that's when we begin to gather more information. I begin to travel more. And we found there are people who want this from a scientific perspective. They want it from an ancient healing shaman perspective and it's really a combination of two things there are people who want us to do it for them there are people who want to learn to do it themselves for other people so i've just been doing this by the seat of my pants and what people wanted we knew that we had something we couldn't explain it we couldn't take it to the fda although we did they just shut the door in our face and said, you know, this isn't uh, medicine, you know, don't don't bug us. We're still looking for what was happening. Finally, about eight years ago, it finally dawned on me that people with similar issues have similar vocal anomalies. And we could put people into categories. These people are going to get cancer. These people are going to have kidney disease. These people are going to have bone and muscle disease. And we could put them in categories. And at least we had a running start to show, okay, here's three people who have macular degeneration. And we give them this sound or these are the commonalities in their voice that are a problem and their macular degeneration goes away. But we still couldn't explain it. We had people coming here, um, one guy named Bill, and I don't remember his last name. He wanted to buy the company. He wanted me to fire everybody, put me in a room to make databases that he could go out and sell uh, to different foundations about skin and, and um, gout and you know whatever else. One, that wouldn't make me happy. And two, it wouldn't put the information in the hands of the people. At this point, I was just getting answers when I'd ask for them. 
I didn't know I had that open channel uh, to whatever else was going on. So I got asked to do a lot of kind of crazy things. There was a guy um, who wanted to know what was going on in my voice. So we were tested at the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Bay Lab. Dr. Junker there tested my voice. And my voice can create pure tones. That's impossible for human voice, supposedly. My voice could create sine waves. That's supposedly impossible. And more than that, my voice could create pictures. I remember one lab thing we were doing. We're all hooked up to all these things in our hair and and our body and, and like electrodes and stuff. And they asked me if I would do the sound of this lady um, next to me. And I couldn't hear her sound. There's too much equipment in the room. And I said, can I disclass your fingers? That'll be my point of concentration. And in the vocal print, which is normally a bunch of squiggly lines up and down, there was a picture of clasped fingers. And this guy didn't tell me. He said, just look out the window there and just do a sound of whatever you see. And it was a mosque. And the sound that I did was a picture of the top of the mosque, that rounded, domey thing that's pointed. He said, Sherry, close your eyes. Think of something and don't tell me what it is and do a sound. And so I did. And he turned around to me and he said, church bells. My voice created church bells as a picture. Do you remember them telling you you can create what you want with your voice? I think that's true from an ancient perspective, but also think the Catholic Church bred us out of us because when they wouldn't let us create songs, music, in notes together that were six notes away, like C and F sharp, C sharp and G, D and G sharp, that relationship of sounds gives you dominion over your physical body. Those are the and we went back and looked and those are the sounds that I was doing. It was incredible. It's in Penelope Gook's book about the devil's triad. The Catholic Church tried to breed that out of songs and most people got their songs in the church. But it was a piece of information that was very valuable to us because we began to give people frequencies in those relationships and their muscles would stop hurting and their bones would set themselves. And we worked with these relationships and found out that in the Bible there is a relationship of 3, 6, and 9 that's supposed to be for healing. So we put a pyramid together with relationships of 3, 6, and 9 all together. It's our logo, if you want to look at it. And it has 3-inch triangles, 6-inch triangles, and 9-inch triangles. And that was a formula that was helping us even further. And we thought, well, these people in a Bible really knew their stuff. And one day we had this, uh, we made one of these things out of wire. Actually, my 11-year-old kid did, who's now an engineer. And I had it setting in the classroom, and one day it was casting a shadow 
onto the big whiteboard. And the shadow was the Templar cross. I couldn't believe it. Normally when a country or a group comes in to annihilate another city or, or whatever, they get rid of everything that was the old stuff, the old language, the old religion, the old games, um, whatever. So here it is in a Bible about this 3, 6, and 9, and really it is the shadow of the Templar cross. Now, I don't know if you can imagine three triangles all sharing a third of the top triangle. I'll try to put a picture in here for you. And that the shadow of that creates the Maltese cross, the formulas, the architecture, the patterns in that shadow is what we discovered in using it. And I just got all combined. I I became the inside of that shadow, and I could see the formulas. And I brought them back to reality, this dimension. I really believe there's lots of dimensions here we can't see or hear. And I began to work with it. And the formulas, there were different formulas that created different things. Some from an outside source like a toxin. Some of the formulas for bio, were biochemistry. Some of the formulas were Pythagorean. Some of them were Kepler. Some were even tempered scale. The formulas were all in that shadow. And that began the ability to create formulas. And I was doing it with my voice. And then we got this thing called a SMAD, a self-management auditory device. And it had a, one channel on it that didn't work. We went back, we got two channels, and that worked. And a company in New Mexico had helped me develop that. They brought me to them because Louis Stevens, the guy who was testing my voice here at Ohio University, figured out that I could uh, erase or scramble reel-to-reel tapes. And the government heard about it and didn't like it. So they brought me out there and we're working in their big lab and whatever. So as we're putting these sounds together and I'm trying to listen for them, one sound wouldn't do it. Because if I do your sound, if I can hear your sound and vocalize it, I don't hear your sound anymore. And if I get off tune of your sound, I begin to hear it. So that's our ace in the hole for being able to tell what sound really belongs to you or really belongs to a space. I'll talk about that more in a minute. So as we're trying to put these formulas together, we decided we needed an A channel and a B channel. And then I could make it mechanically not hear your sound anymore. So we began to build these SMADs and check them out. And then from there we built tone boxes and gathering more data still not knowing what we were doing. I was then teaching at Ohio University in the um, lab, the um, video, video and audio lab where they make films. Film lab, that's it. And we were teaching these kids how to change the aspects of their 
films. One was a bicycle wheel, and we could put the bicycle spill spinning, but did it with different um, tones, different notes, and F-sharp was very different from an E in what it created as a sound. So every time that... Every time people would play that bicycle spoke, which is the same thing, we just changed the sound on it, they would get different feelings, emotions. Now, there's some musical people who do that all on their own. They just know what music to create with what feeling, like da-da-da-da, you know, like creating uh, tension. But music is tension and release tension and release and that's the same thing that we were doing here uh, but I still I don't know what I'm doing we just know the results as we're teaching this I went on the road trying to teach this to people really just trying to find answers and we decided that I would come home I need to back this story up just a little bit there was a guy near us that jumped in a pond with his young kids and um, hit a rock and busted his leg up really bad. And they couldn't fix it and they couldn't do anything with it. And finally they asked me to come and I gave him the sounds for his leg. It relieved the pain. Um, It set his leg. It set the bones. And so a couple months later his son is walking up our driveway and I said, Bob, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just checking to see if this will come up your driveway, because we live on an, an old gravel road with a really rough driveway. He said, Dad sent you something. And it was a 32-foot motorhome outfitted with oscilloscopes and microphones and everything that I would need as a laboratory. He said, I want you to, to go on the road with this. Use it however you want. We need to find answers. You helped my leg. We need to help thousands of other people. So I went on the road, and I ended up with some of the most incredible stories of what is going on. And I ended up having to uh, travel with a bodyguard. One day, a lady was following me and she followed me in the bathroom and into the bathroom stall and my bodyguard grabbed her by her neck and I turned around and said yeah I have to do this by myself and when I got out of the stall that lady was still there her baby had been born gray I had never seen a human being gray and she was in the little girl was in an incubator and she didn't have a voice and I started singing to her And she started to pink up. And she started to be able to breathe. And I think that saved that baby's life. And there were many, many more people like that that I met on the road. I knew there was something to this. I knew I had to find an answer. I knew I had to keep going. But one night, I called home and I was out west someplace and I was so lonesome. I had three kids and a husband at home. I was neglecting them. 
I'm out here on the road. I don't have enough money. You know, one day I had $6, and that's all I had. So I bought a big pizza, and I had two pieces of pizza a day to last me for several days. Because people wanted what I had. They didn't have any money to pay for it. So here I am out in the middle of nowhere, and I called my husband. I'm upset, and I'm crying. And he is the voice of reason. And he said, do you remember that little girl that had Tourette's? And she doesn't have Tourette's anymore? Do you remember that guy that couldn't breathe and now he can? Do you remember all those other little kids that you helped in pain? And Will you remember them? Remember what good this is, what good you do, and I'll see you in a few days. It broke my heart that I couldn't spend time with my own kids, my own husband. They were totally neglected for this. Now, yes, we helped Rana. Yes, I helped Ricky, who was in, uh, became infertile um, after some stupid shot the doctor gave her. Yes, I helped my son Jesse and his leg. Yes, I've helped my husband in all of his sports injuries. But I didn't get to spend the cook a Thanksgiving dinner, bake a pie kind of mom stuff that you do and the little girl with Tourette's was a tremendous story the mother was a speech pathologist brought her to me I think I was in Phoenix someplace I can't remember where I was and this little girl had severe Tourette's if you've ever seen Tourette's there's there's ticks there's knocks there they grind their teeth they they can't speak they keep doing kind of the same thing all the time no voice so, and the little girl stunk really bad because they couldn't get her mouth open to brush her teeth, and her teeth were all rotten. And it was really hard for me to get past that. I still have trouble getting past big gashes and cuts and things like that. I am not a medical person by any means. So I did her sound, and she had never spoken a word. And through gritted teeth, she said, Thank you. Thank you. And she came over, and she'd never shown affection for anybody. She laid her head on my chest and slobbered all over me. I, it was still very hard for me to get through this. Uh, and I remember it well. I had to go home and take showers and whatever. I feel very much empathy for anybody who has somebody that's incapacitated and they need to take care of because I it's not patience I just freak out when I know somebody's dying I can't go around them I want to get over that so bad but the mother called me about a week or so later and said my my daughter's talking now and she's told me that my boyfriend has been molesting her for many years. That changing of that life, of that little girl, that's an incredible thing. I'll never forget her. For the good and the bad that it did. And sometimes I don't know what to say to people 
about what's going on. I want to help. I try to help. I feel bad when I can't. I feel bad in my own family when they won't let me help. My mother blew a heart valve. And they said, oh, he come because she's got days to live. And she was incapacitated in a hospital bed. And she couldn't tell me no. So I did her sounds and I put them under the bed. And a week goes by, two weeks, and she didn't die. And we're saying, you know, what's wrong or what's going on? And the doctor said, well, I don't know. Let's look at it. And they took her back to do x-rays and whatever. And he came back and he said, God loves you. You've grown new um, vessels around the problem, and your heart valve has restructured itself. My mother bragged to everyone then (laughs) that I was a daughter. So if it works on somebody, they begin to believe it. But it is incredibly hard to believe before that time. I remember one time I was out, I think, Colorado again, and it was a Sufi meeting, and they invited me to do a speech, and I did my thing in the the afternoon and the evening. They were having this dance out in this field, and they left their children on a blanket uh, in this field, and they were just getting to eat up with bugs. So I gathered up all the kids and took them back to the house, and we were out on this um, porch that had a stone floor and big French doors opened into the house, and on this porch it had a little ledge that was stone, and it had lounge chairs and whatever there. And and I'm just teaching the little kids to do their sounds, and I love it because they're so pure. And it's getting dark, and I'm sort of humming them to sleep, and, and they're listening to their own sounds because I'm teaching them how to listen to that powerful inner signature sound and we've written articles about that. I'll send them to you if you want. About the sound that your brain and your body creates that is the most helpful, powerful healing sound. And to let you know you don't need me at all or my smads or vocal profiles, if you can listen to that sound, that sound heals you. So you don't need anything I have. And I think I'm just here on the planet to remind people to listen to that and to come back to that as a center, as an ancient healing technique. But if you want to go this route, you're welcome to do that too. We have free classes for you. We have free software for you on our site, thesoundhealthoptions.com, and also on the soundhealthportal.com. You can have a free vocal profile done Uh, for a lot of different things. Right now we're doing it on breathing and trying to help those people in the California fires. But one thing that happened to me, my husband and I talked about this when we got that wonderful 32-foot van outfitted to do any kind of experiment I wanted to do and, and took it on a road. So we decided that when there's a time when somebody comes back to me and tells me about me, then I can come home. And so I was at a studio once, and um, a guy there was one of the students that I had taught at Ohio University. And he didn't know who I was, but he started telling me about this lady who could do sounds, and she could do sounds that would make space echo. And I said, 
that's me. I can do that. He said, really do it. And so, yes, I can hear sound, space. I can hear shape. But we had made this pact that if somebody came back and told me about myself, I would come home, and we figured it'd be about 10 years. Well, at this Sufi dance where I'm singing to all these little kids, some guy comes out of this um, French doors or glass, and there's light behind him. I can't see who he is. And he comes over and he sits down beside me. He said, I heard a little bit of what you were doing, and I just want to tell you I'm traveling with a lady that uh, makes sounds simple like what you do. And he started telling me about what she did and experiments and blah, blah, blah. And boy, now I'm dying to meet this lady. And I said, what's her name? And he said, Sherry Edwards. The joy that burst forth from my body, the peace, it was more peace than joy. It was, I can go home now. I never did tell that guy who I was. He'll probably read about himself someday. Or he was an angel coming to tell me that he had been traveling with me all along and that I could go home now. And it was only eight years in that I had to stay on the road and try to deliver this to the people one person at a time. I thought I have no money to do this from the top down like some big pharmaceutical company. I'm going to have to do it from the bottom up, one person at a time, one group at a time, the hundredth monkey. I was afraid that we'd exposed ourselves to the FDA and the NIH, and they asked us to do a grant, by the way, which ended up in uh, a big pharma hand. I almost said their name. So as we're working with all of this to keep it in the hands of the people by doing our marketing from the bottom up. We're doing radio shows. We're doing classes. We're writing articles. We're seeing clients. We're gathering data. We're training other people. We're doing everything that we can to keep this information in the hands of the people where it belongs. One doctor took our class, and that class was about um, heel spurs. And we know the muscle that causes heel spurs. We know the frequency. This doctor took it back to his hospital. He got a big um, tub of water, almost like a small swimming pool. He put these people in these boots, and he ran that frequency through that water three times to cure a heel spur, $3,500 a pop, and you, the consumer, had to pay it when you could have come to our class for nearly nothing. You have to buy a microphone. You have to have a computer. And you would have gotten the information. This information about frequencies will come to you if you are very quiet, if you listen to the inside of your ears, if you become one with the sounds and the dimensions of our space and our reality. There's an article about this under in the news, and it's about how to go into theta and listen to your own sound and program yourself for your own sound. But it is definitely 
a dimensional shift. There's some science listening to the sounds in your ears, which scientifically is called an odoacoustic emission. But listening to that sound, it will take you to other dimensions where you can't feel your body. And if you are afraid of spiders, a six-foot one will be there. And you reach out your arm and you say, here, take a bite, I'm going on. And if you're trying to get a, over a wall, the way over it may be backwards. There's no logic there. But there's a peace, an incredible peace that I have found in my journey trying to bring this through from an ancient perspective and putting it into the hands of science and putting it in your hands for its fruition because that's where it belongs, with you, the people. Because whoever controls health controls the quality of life, whether it be you, the person, or the people who are serving the people. And that is the reason we're doing this series, to let you know about how all of this came about and how it brings all of our being, ancient and modern, science and esoteric, intuition and faith, it brings all of the pieces together. My ears and my mouth are the ace in the hole that we have. When we started publishing papers in 1982, I started doing the work long before that. But there's a lot of people out there following us. That's good and bad. MIT is following us from a project we did with the Army. I see that the Mayo Clinic is following us. It's catching on. First, we got this total disapproval, and I was in a state of, oh, I can't even name the state, confusion. I didn't know what was going on. And the more data that we gathered, what we talked about this time, the more it became clear. Now our next series is going to tell you how the devices were built, how all of that comes about, how you can be involved, how you can find out about biofields, about things that you can create to help your own family. There, it's just incredible what this can do. It is the math, I should say that different, it is the medicine of the future. We have shown that we are math-based frequency units. And we can even make replacement parts now, you know, an ear, a liver, or whatever. We are very sophisticated robots. And I'm hoping in our next session we will help you write the manual on how to take care of your own being, your own robot, and live forever, which creates another problem, and we'll talk about that next time. It's always an amazing, when I hear these bits of story working with Sherry down at the years, it's just an amazing series of events that's got us here today with not only the nano voice, which I still think is a great, great device, you know, piece of software, but all the way to the level of the sound health portal now is just stupendous. And if you want to uh, after I press end, 
in about 15 minutes. You can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on the Blog Talk Radio Archive player, and you'll be able to find the show there. It's called The Bioacoustic Journey, D4T, Direction for Truth. And or you'll also be able to go to any of the podcast aggregators, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Dogcatcher. There's another one, WebMonkey, I think. Um, and you'll be able to go there and search for Sherry Edwards and find our over now 550 shows. But this show should be there in about an hour or so because you're going to probably want to listen to it again and or pass it on to your friends. It's a It's a great story of the journey of how we are where we are today. So thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you on Sunday. Bye-bye.